welcome to The Mission Matters. The Mission Matters is a partnership between 1615 and Missio Nexus, who have a shared passion to mobilize God's people to be a part of His mission. The Mission Matters is hosted by Matthew Ellison, President of 1615, and Ted Esler, President of Missio Nexus. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Matthew Ellison and Ted Esler. Welcome once again to the Mission Matters podcast. I'm Matthew Ellison, president of 1615. And as always, I am joined by my good friend and co-host, Ted Esler, who serves as the president of Missio Nexus. You already know that. It's on the intro of the program. But hey, I'm going to stick it out there anyway. Ted, always good to be with you, my friend. Good to see you, Matthew. Really looking forward today to today's conversation. But as always, we like to start off with a random or a softball question. And I was thinking this morning about one of the first CDs I ever purchased. Now, I have to qualify it as one of the first because I can't remember the exact one, but it's got to be one of the first 10. Uh, Steve Earle, Guitar Town, and just right after I bought Copperhead Road. And I, I had this Toyota 4x4. I was probably a junior or senior in high school. I'd saved up money. And I had kicker subwoofers in the back. And that bass um, sound from Copperhead Road was incredible. I would just crank it. So uh, that was at least one of my first, you know, 10 CDs, those two. How about you? Well, for me, I, I, when, I, when I got the question in email from you, I had to chuckle because... <laughs> CDs came out like way after I was into my musical <laughs> world. So I got to go with the first album I bought. Okay. Um, and that was uh, the, the, the Boston album, Boston number one. And um, I always remember we, we used to joke. So I, I had the album. And of course, back then, if you had the album, you could, you could make a recording on cassette tape to play in your car. And I played that thing so many times that if you'd held it up to the light, you could see right through it. <laughs> That's great. So that'd be it for me. Um, and CDs probably came out uh, about halfway through my college time. So I actually don't remember the first CD, but my first album I remember as a junior high kid was Boston Number One. It's a great on, the call, <laughs> on the call today, we have Dave Dedema. And uh, how about you? What's the first? piece of music you, you can remember buying yeah I have to go back to albums as well and I'm I'm definitely more Christian than you guys because it was Petra I was a big ah. Petra guy and I remember one of their songs you you would turn the record backwards there's a yes. secret message and uh so I thought that was really crazy and I have to be honest I don't even remember CDs I think I went straight from you know, I've got still today a lot of cassettes, and I think I just skipped the whole CD era uh, somehow. I don't know if I just went straight to uh, digital or if I just blanked out for a while. So I remember that Petra album because, so that's the album that had uh, Judas Kiss on it. And the backward part was right before the song uh, that, you know, and if you played it backwards, you could hear, what are you looking for the devil for when you should be looking for the Lord? That's right. 
So you had to spin it backwards on your turntable there. <laughs> so sorry about that, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Albums were more fun. They just were. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave, could you tell us who you are? And uh, then we'll kind of get into our conversation. It's going to be a fun talk. Yeah, my name is Dave Datema, and I've been Datema. serving with Frontier Ventures, uh, formerly the U.S. Center for World Mission, for just over 21 years. I grew up as an MK in Sierra Leone, West Africa. I pastored for about a decade in Ohio, and uh, and then I've been here in based in Pasadena, California. All right. And my role here is missiology catalyst, and uh, so that word catalyst is used a lot I know in the mission world and so I catalyze missiology as much as I can around here. So you recently wrote an article that was published in I think it was Global Missiology right is that the name of the journal that published it? No just uh, missiology. Just missiology okay sorry uh, regarding the viability of the people group concept and uh, tell us why you wrote it and what's the big idea behind the article. Yeah, over the last 10 years, there has been a lot of critique about people group concept, and which is good. And I'm in the article was responding to an article that was written in 2018 by Leon Park, suggesting that we need to move beyond people groups. And their main arguments were both biblical and sociological. And my article focused on the biblical. And I'm basically just saying there, look, the idea of human grouping is all throughout scripture. It's not a new idea that uh, 20th century sociologists put on us. It's not part of the church growth movement or, or anything like that. It's not something Ralph Winter invented in 1974. But the idea of uh, human grouping is all throughout scripture. And so that's really what I'm trying to do with the article. Uh, just focusing really on the biblical part of that issue. I don't really get into the sociological uh, arguments, but others have done that most recently in the EMQ article that you were involved with, Ted. So Dave, um, talking about some of your critics here, okay. Darren Carlson happens to be one of them, and uh, his position is this. He says, the most significant issue with defining Pantata ethne as ethno-linguistic groupings adopts this modern, as you say, anthropological definition over a biblical theological one. He talks about McGavern, Winters, um, you know, Winter, excuse me. I always add the S, it's Winter. I have to remember that. McGavern, Winter. Um, reacting to a purely geographic and nationalistic understanding of ethne. Here's the problem, they say. Uh, we've swapped the definition for a modern, and again, you mentioned this, socio-scientific one. Maybe you can probe a little bit deeper into that. How do you respond to that? You mentioned you give a biblical response, so talk a little bit about that biblical response for us. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of this goes back, and, and one problem we have is that most people don't have access to the books that were written when all this was being worked out. You know, these books were written in the 70s and 80s, largely, or article, articles and journals. Most people don't have access to these books, and they're reliant on, you know, website information about, about people groups. And so 
what I tried to do was go back and, and understand all that argumentation. And what I see happening is there's a fear, especially among conservative evangelicals, that what the Bible says is being co-opted with social science. And uh, this went all the way back. Remember the church growth movement came under a lot of criticism for this, that it was just sociology wrapped up in a few uh, verses of scripture. And I don't think that's what was happening at all. I think McGavran was just correlating scripture with his understanding of what he saw in India. And, um, you know, uh, the concept of diverse human groupings, I say, is inherently biblical and was not manufactured in the 20th century. Um, you know, I, part of it is this word homogeneous. So you can get away with talking about human grouping and, and stuff like that. But when you introduce words like homogeneous, then people don't like that because that word is not in the Bible anywhere. But it was simply a new phrase representing an ancient idea. And that's, that's my argument. It, it is a new phrase and we're not even using that much anymore. Um, but the idea goes way, way back. So let, let me, uh, I'm going a little off script here, Matthew, but one of the things that I've noticed, so now we talk a lot about movements and I get the sense that missiology has largely been considered an anthropological study historically, but it seems to me that now we talk a lot more about sociological concepts when we talk about missiology. And there's been a shift, and, and maybe part of that is the individualistic uh, Western worldview fit well with cultural anthropology looking at individuals. But would you agree that there seems to be more, and, I, and I'm actually not afraid of a little sociology in my missiology, so would you think there's a little bit of a shift towards sociology from anthropology? Well, that would be better answered by an anthropologist or sociologist and I am neither of those, but there, I will say that there is a lot of overlap. And I even sometimes struggle to know uh, when I'm reading something, is this, is this anthropologist talking or sociologist talking? Yeah. But yeah, there is, there is that fear. And, you know, coupled with fears of racism, you know, that's something we can definitely identify with today. Um, how is this idea of focusing on particular people groups, you know, that scares people and has scared people in the past um, because of what happened to German missiology and the Nazi party. So you have this in interesting uh, Kittel who's famous in evangelical circles for his theological dictionary. He was a, an unrepentant member of the Nazi party and his career basically ended in 1945. Well, there's this, this fear of when you start talking about people groups and ethnicity, you're gonna move over and you're gonna, you're gonna go that same route and you're gonna start uh, becoming racist. So what I see happening, when you look back and read what people wrote, even a guy as eminent as, as David Bosch, you know, he, he really struggled with that coming out of his context in South Africa, mm -hmm. struggled to understand it's as if he was just didn't want to get talking too much about ethnicity, human grouping. 
um, because of what might lay behind that. But I don't think that was the basis of it. And like I say in the article, I believe that social science has kind of affirmed what uh, biblically has been there all along, that humans exist within many, many diverse human groupings. And I even list out a lot of the Hebrew words, a lot of the Greek words mm -hmm. that just show this, this great kaleidoscope um, of words that are used in scripture to denote this grouping. So Dave, uh, again, I want to surface some of the ideas that the critics bring out, because one of the things we want to do with the show is provoke thinking. We want to create some disequilibrium so that people listen to the show and then they themselves go back to the scriptures and search the scriptures, the, that they behave like the Bereans, right? So um, let's talk about the commissioning statements of Jesus, and particularly in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I like picking it up in 16 myself because I, I, I like that he gives the great commission to doubters, right? <laughs> we skip 16 and 17, but I love that. Men who do not have it all together, they still had doubts hidden in the folds of the heart. And then, of course, he gives them what we commonly refer to as the great commission, though there was five commissioning statements. And the critics say that when Jesus was communicating to this audience to make disciples of all nations, that we simply can't be sure that he was referring to ethno-linguistic groupings. They say that his audience would have immediately thought of non-Jews, you know, Gentiles as non-Jews. Would you address that? What yeah. was Jesus talking about? Yeah, so this, this was a common use in the New Testament of ethne as referring to Gentiles and, uh, or basically non-Jews. And so what I say in the article is, yes, that is true. It is a valid, legitimate meaning of ethne in the New Testament. But I'm also saying, but it is not what Matthew meant in Matthew 28, 19. And, um, you know, I don't know if you want to get into the detailed reasons why I think that, because it gets kind of, you know, exegetical and whatnot. But I think there's a strong case to be made that in that particular case, he is not referring to Gentiles. He is actually referring to human groupings of people. And um, another reason why I think this is because when you look at the passages that connect the Old Testament to the New Testament, where basically old, the Old Testament promise in Genesis 12 is repeated in the New Testament, when you look at those places, um, what you find is the words used, uh, they vary. There are several words used, but they, they don't mean this non-Jewish massive population. And again, the importance of grouping. And I would say it may even be most, more important to look at the Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9 passages in, in this matter, because those were written at the very end of the New Testament canon. And there again, you see this uh, four words, four different words, this redundancy used to describe human diversity. And so I, I entitled the article, The Universal Particularism of Pantata Ethne. And that's all I'm saying. I don't even mind the, if it's translated Gentiles, as long as we understand that when Matthew said Gentiles, he was not just thinking of a a, a conglomerate of people that were not Jews. He obviously understood, and I think 
uh, Matthew and all the readers of the New Testament understood that the world consisted of all these particular groups. And so it's somewhat of a fine point, but I think it's a very important point because it, it, it says that particularism doesn't need necessarily to lead to negative things like uh, racism uh, or things like of that nature. And okay. that God is both and, it's not either or. So by particularism, what you mean is that the Gentiles are not a singular block, but that they're made up of many different particular groups inside, correct? Yeah. And if you look at uh, one thing I found really interesting, and it's in, in the footnotes of the article, there are ver certain verses of, of scripture where you'll see these various uh, groupings, these words for different types of human groupings used, sometimes in the same verse. And, um, you know, probably the best example that we're all familiar with is uh, Achan in the book of Judges, when God, first he brings them uh, by, by tribe, and then they're broken up by, by clan, and then household, and then it's Achan who's pointed out. So right in that story, you've, you, you see that they, they had this understanding of, of groupings, and it wasn't a negative thing. And one thing I found interesting, uh, uh, Hesselgrave, who, who kind of walked the fence carefully on this issue back in the day, he even said at one point, uh, whether the Great Commission requires it or not, the best way to plan for world evangelization is to, divide, is to divide its population up into some kind of identifiable and homogeneous groupings for which sound strategy can be devised and implemented. So there is just this inherent logic that's part of this as well. Um, and it's guided missionary endeavor for centuries. Um, so in some ways it makes sense, you know, really apart from all the biblical arguments, uh, you, humanity is quite large and it, it makes sense to note uh, the differences involved there. You know, just last night I taught a perspectives course, uh, lesson 13, spontaneous multiplication of the churches of the church and the there was a debate in the room about the homogenous uh, principle and i think one of the reasons why there's a knee-jerk reaction to it is we want to think we want to have and we want to theologize about a diverse body and the principle seems to suggest that you're trying to purposefully plant non-diverse churches that's right. Any, any any reaction to that? Well, it's a great uh, it's a great point, and I think something that we in the mission world are continuing to struggle with. In the late '90s, Doug McConnell wrote an article saying, "Okay, all you church growth folks, you said that once we started down this route, eventually these churches would eventually become more uh, enveloping." And it's not happening. Yeah. I don't know if that article has ever really been responded to. Yeah. And so um, I know that in America, this comes up uh, more and more now. We, we're still talking about this. Recent articles in Christianity Today talking about this multi-ethnic thing. How come it's not working like it's supposed to be working? How, can we, how come we still struggle with this? So I, I do believe that it is an ongoing discussion 
of what does this mean? Where do we draw the lines? And what type of particularism or groupism is okay? Does it mean that it has to, does it have to mean that on a given Sunday in a given church, at least 10 different nationalities is represented? Is that what it means? Or can it mean something else? And so I think the verdict is still out and we're all struggling with that question. So Dave, let's talk about the implications of losing this particularism, okay? Uh, you obviously, you know, you have a passion for this, you're writing about it, you want the word to get out there. So there's some consequences when we don't have the particularism. I know some of them, Ted knows some of them. Share with our audience what happens if we're just talking about this giant group out there outside of non-juice and we don't particularize. Yeah, well, I think there is the practical piece of it that I already mentioned. Um, you know, I, um, I think that it's a fear of, like I said, we're, we're fearful that of where it may lead to. Um, but I, again, I think it's something we, ju we just need to continue to struggle with. If, if you don't have a people group focus, where do you begin then? And I go back again to the, the sociological critique is that because of migration and because of globalization and the technological revolution that, um, you know, the idea of people groups doesn't, doesn't work anymore. And so, you know, critiques of people groups are true depending on the understanding of people groups that's assumed. So if you think that people groups are these very distinct uh, groups with obvious characteristics that no one else shares, and you think the world is like that, I think we all need to agree that that's not the case. Um, and yet the problem is the, the way that people groups have been, uh, the way we've mobilized around people groups, we've had to make it pretty simple so that a basic church member can understand what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And so the idea does get dumbed down, uh, dumbed down, to an extent that's unfortunate. And then we think, oh, that's what people groups mean. And so it's, it's, it's not what people groups really mean. And um, there's, there's the difference that John Baxter has pointed out between anthropological description and gospel penetration. So it, our interest is not going out into the world and describing every pocket of humanity in a way that works. Uh, there's so much change and flux that you couldn't do that anyway. We're, we're simply saying, uh, how, do we, how do we get at the largest groups that are sufficiently unified? And this was Winter's Unimax principle. Um, the maximum number of people sufficiently unified to be the recipient of a, of a people movement to Christ. That's what it is. We don't know how many there are. We don't know... Uh, we can't put them on a website. Uh, and so this, this is a, a key point, I think, that we all need to move to. Um, if, if you don't value uh, particularism, if you don't value that kind of uh, group, human grouping, then uh, I, I just think you're, you get lost and you, you don't even know where to start. I think I agree, it's overwhelming. Where, where do you begin? But I think another implication of this that I've seen a lot in churches is that 
it, it really steals motivation away from going cross-culturally. I mean, if Jesus is just talking about this non-Jew grouping, then it would seem to me the goal of the Great Commission is just to win as many people to Jesus as possible. You know, um, bear as much fruit as you can. You, you know the saying, grow where you're planted. What's the purpose of going to these hard to reach, darkened places if in fact that's not what Jesus called us to? If it was just, hey, just win non-Jews. I mean, the practical implication of that for me is, man, find out where there's stuff going on and do it. Don't go to the unreached, right? Um, and I think churches have adopted that. That's why they stay away from the hard places. You know, missions is just winning people to Jesus. When I, I agree with you, I think it's far more specific. It is nuanced, but it's far more specific. And I love your reference to Revelation 5. I mean, I think that seals the deal, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit peels back the curtains of time and space, and we get a glimpse into the end that history is moving towards. And what we see is worship flowing forth from the redeemed, and you use the word kaleidoscope. The Bible does nothing willy-nilly. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything randomly. Those four words are there for a reason. No matter how you finally define this, nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, right? Did I get that right? But the idea, this kaleidoscope, I mean, it's, it's every group of people, language, tribe, yeah. So that's one of my concerns about not having the particularization of people groups is it kind of just says everything is missions. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've stated that very well. You know, you don't, your, your article is like you said, it's mostly exegetical, but the whole concept of uh, how we group people, uh, there's a book called the invention of world religions by Masuzawa. And in that book, she talks about the fact that prior to about 150 years ago, never, nobody really talked about Islam or Christianity. Their mental framework was that, you know, there's cultures out there. Some cultures are Christian, some cultures may be Islamic. But she said, we've invented this idea that these religions are even worldwide. And uh, even as an evangelical, uh, when, you, when you travel globally and you're with other evangelicals, you realize that the forms and structure of faith, how they practice, et cetera, it's very different. Um, I was reminded about this a little bit. There was a discussion in a missiological forum. The question being posed is, you know, who's the most close to the gospel, Buddhists or Muslims? And I just thought to myself, what a worthless question. Uh, inside Islam, there's so many different groups. Some are very open, like the Iranians. Some are not. Uh, and, and the same would be true of Buddhism. So anyway. Yeah, we're struggling with that as well within Frontier Ventures. And we, we feel like we almost have to use the word religion, but we don't like the word. And, you know, the good thing is, as Christians, we know that Christianity is splintered into thousands of fragments. And, you know, the other religions are exactly the same way. And yeah. so which, which Christianity are you talking about? Which Buddhism are you talking about? Which Islam are we talking about? And um, so again, how do we have those deep level conversations uh, and be able to talk to people that don't have time to, to get into that deep, deep stuff, but they still need to hear? Yeah. So let's make this practical as we wrap this up today, Dave. Thank you so much for your insights. We really appreciate it. 
but maybe a listener or a viewer has been provoked. Um, this is worth working through. Don't just dismiss this because it's going to require some time and thoughtfulness. Where, you, where might you point people? Of course, your article is a starting point. But if they wanted to delve deeper into this to make sure that they were aligning their understanding with what we believe is to be a biblical understanding, where could they go to really go deeper into this idea? Well, I think the uh, fall issue of the EMQ that Ted was involved with is a, is a great place because that whole issue had to do with this issue. And it represents, I think, the most current thinking on it. Um, you know, I'm biased. I have an article in there that I co-wrote with uh, Lynn Bartlotti. Um, if you go to the uh, ijfm.org website, um, I also have an article there on kind of the history of the idea of people group and unreached people group, where I, I go into how did this all come about? And I focus there on the percentages that are sometimes used and uh, cause a lot of confusion. Um, and, then, um, and then of course, this article that I hope gets out there um, uh, at some point later on, especially, there's, there's certain by, by rights, there's only, I can only distribute it so much. And so I don't know how to get the uh, article into the hands of people unless they, they're willing to pay for it. But um, hopefully it'll get out there in, in a more free form soon. Um, uh, but those are the initial places I would look. Ted, uh, where would you point people to besides that? Well, I mean, I would, I would agree that that fall EMQ is the place, that's kind of the go-to place. Um, I mean, past that, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this Modus Day network. They've been having uh, a number of missiological conversations, a really good spirit in that group. So you could do a, a Google search for Modus Day. And I have no idea who gets in or out of that group, but um, yeah. they have a good discussion about this. Um, but yeah, I'd get that EMQ uh, and, I'd, and I'd take a look at it. So Dave's article, you know, your article really did. I kind of wish it would have been included in that issue of EMQ because you did something unique uh, with the topic that wasn't there already. So uh, I'm going to give my plug here. So there, there's a saying that we use a lot of a phrase we turn, and that is that many churches don't do well is because they've not thought about missions well. And, and I think they, they shrink back from the labor, you know, the mental labor that's required to do this. And uh, again, knowing that your article, Dave, was rooted in scripture, I would say go to the word, right? I mean, that, that's the obvious here. But, but I think our hope is that don't take our word for it. There's a lot of half-truths and assumptions out there about missions. And those half-truths and assumptions, they shape and inform the way we do missions. And so I, my, uh, my plug is be like the Bereans. If you've heard this conversation and you're not settled in your heart and mind about nations and pantata ethne, search the scriptures, rightly divide a word of truth, ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. I think that's a great place to go. So anyway, well, Dave, thank you so much. Uh, this is the time in the show where we turn to the closing segment, something Ted likes. So what is it today, Ted? All right. Let me start with the question, Matthew. Does 1615 have a TechSoup subscription? A TechSoup subscription. We do not. Okay. So 
Something I like is TechSoup. You can find them at techsoup.org. And what it is, is it's a, it's a, uh, it's like a buying club for nonprofits. Churches can join. I've, I've never seen any religious discrimination on TechSoup. And uh, you can get licenses for software. You can get hardware. It's all sorts of digital goods. And uh, one of the things that I have that I really like, I get from TechSoup, is uh, they give access to what's called a mobile beacon. It's a small wireless device. It's 125 bucks a year for unlimited data, high-speed data. And I know you can do it on your phone. This thing's far more powerful and the connection can be shared with other people. That's one example. We buy almost all our software licenses through TechSoup and it really saves us a boatload of money. So if you're a ministry out there and uh, whether it's, like I said, a church or a mission agency, um, you can use TechSoup to lower your costs. So that's something I like. Ted, you are the tech genius. You are the tech genius. <laughs> if you need tech advice, Ted's the man. You're going to have a bunch of emails now. I'm sorry about that, Ted. <laughs> well, we're wrapping it up today, Ted. Thanks again. Um, always great to co-host with you. And Dave, thank you for being with us today. A very important conversation. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Before you go, would you visit our host's websites? There you will find a wealth of interesting and challenging information about the state of the Great Commission. They are 1615.org and missionexus.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss one. Mission Matters is presented through a partnership between 1615 Missions Coaching and Missio Nexus.